Welcome to Brit Happens. I'm your host, Brittany Sharpton. Brit Happens is an interview-based audio show where successful entrepreneurs, professionals, and thought leaders discuss how they've navigated unexpected career curveballs and turned setbacks into wins and stumbling blocks into stepping stones. Our purpose is not just to identify the issues and obstacles, but dive into the thought processes and tactics that can be deployed to overcome challenges all of us face. You know, I could have had a lot safer career path, but at every turn, I I took the hard way. And that's because I want to have an impact, and I want to have an impact socially for our people. And so that's really my mission in business, and that's what I get gratification from. I could have just tried to pursue acting and done a bunch of commercials and made plenty of money, but like I wouldn't have been fulfilled by that work. And what would that have done for the world? What kind of legacy would that have left? I've always enjoyed cannabis weed, a product. <laughs> but I got into the business because an opportunity that the city of LA made available through some legislation called Measure M and the Social Equity Program in Los Angeles. It's legislation that creates opportunities for communities that were marginalized and targeted during the war on drugs. I'm super excited to be here with Madison Shockley III. How are you? Hey, I'm doing great. Doing good. How you doing, Brittany? I'm awesome. I'm awesome. And recently celebrated a birthday. Yep. Happy belated birthday. I wanted to ask, obviously, we're in the midst of COVID-19, how you turned up Corona style. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, you know, I got got a bunch of FaceTimes from family and, and friends. And I hadn't seen my parents in a couple months since we all been on lockdown. So they actually, uh, they drove by. And, and so they stayed in, in the car and I, you know, talked to them from a, a good distance away. It was my parents' idea. I was like, all right. Madison, curious how you got in the entertainment industry. How did I get in the entertainment industry? You know. I, I always loved music since a, since a kid. And actually you, you mentioned you, that I play guitar and I started playing guitar in like middle school. And I fell in love with it. One of my friends had an electric guitar uh, in his room and he was playing it and I, and I just thought it was amazing. And so I just badgered my parents for six months until they got me a guitar, electric guitar for Christmas one year. <laughs> And so I've always been into music um, and, you know, studied recording arts and the business of music in college uh, and opened a recording studio around that time as well down in San Diego. Uh, so I, w- I would say that was like my first real professional experience in the entertainment industry was uh, being an audio engineer and, and re- recording studio owner. And you have the hair to match today. <laughs> yeah, the right hair. <laughs> Why don't you market that aspect as much? You know, um, because I've spent most of my career doing business as an entrepreneur. And so that's been more of a hobby uh, for me, but it's been something I've always loved. I wish I I, I had more time to spend uh, playing guitar, but I've I've dedicated my life mostly to, uh, you know, social justice and entrepreneurial pursuits and, and where those two things kind of merge. 
So what entrepreneurial ventures and social justice? Okay, I'm a, I'm a cannabis entrepreneur now. Okay, tell me about it. Okay, so I got into the cannabis space. For one, I, I've always enjoyed uh, cannabis weed uh, as a product. Uh, <laughs> um, but I got into the business because the opportunity that the city of LA uh, made available through some legislation uh, called Measure M and, and the social equity program in Los Angeles. Uh, if you're not familiar with uh, cannabis social equity, it's, it's legislation uh, that creates opportunities for uh, communities that were uh, marginalized and, and targeted during the war on drugs. Uh, if you're a, a black man in a, a large city, uh, you're four times like more likely to get arrested uh, for selling or possession of weed than other folks. And uh, I was a target of that in my teenage years. Uh, I was arrested for uh, possession uh, with intent to sell uh, marijuana when I was 18 years old. And that, that, arrest charge has stuck with me uh, it's, it's always been on my record since you know um, and that's made it difficult in terms of you know opportunities for applying for traditional jobs and uh, just all kind of you know different opportunities that you don't get because when you see that when people see that on your record uh, they think twice about uh, working with um, so yeah so this this legislation said that if you have a previous cannabis arrest, uh, or if you grew up in a zip code in LA that, that was disproportionately impacted, uh, had higher arrest rates than other parts of the city, traditionally, you know, the South part of Los Angeles, uh, then, then you, would be, uh, you would have priority in the processing for uh, these new licenses that are now available in the commercial market. Uh, yeah, so I, I started pursuing that uh, about a year and a half ago. Uh, Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. It was really exciting, the concept uh, at the beginning, but it's been a really difficult journey uh, thus far to, in, in terms of executing that uh, ideal. <laughs> I can imagine it's insanely competitive, right? Absolutely. Uh, LA is the largest cannabis market in the world by far. So now, since it's legalized and people are monetizing on something that, as you mentioned, Black men or African-Americans have been disproportionately incarcerated. Because the legislation that you mentioned are for people to get priority on the licenses. But what do you feel, and there's people probably still serving time for something that white America is making millions on? Like That's right. No, I think, I think all those people should be released right away. And I think, you know, it's, it's a matter of putting pressure on our public officials, uh, our city attorneys, our state attorney, uh, you know, in terms of changing legislation that would allow them to be released. I think there's a, a movement and, and an effort in that direction, but uh, sometimes these politicians get in those positions and don't actually make the changes that would allow for this, these radical changes. I, and and this at this point that shouldn't be a, a radical thing when you have uh, med men on every corner <laughs> in LA and they're predominantly owned by white men, right? Who uh, traditionally have access to capital, 
uh, to the level where they can avoid uh, being incarcerated. <laughs> Whereas a lot of us, we get targeted uh, when we're vulnerable, <laughs> right? And then that, that holds us back from the opportunities to be able to compete uh, against people who don't have those same obstacles. So this is supposed to be, you know, a leveling of the playing field. But because LA is such a large market and cannabis is such a profitable uh, product, uh, you, there was a lot of greed and, and a lot of companies that tried to come in and uh, partner with social equity applicants, but not really respecting the, the intent and the spirit of the social equity program which was designed to have, you know, uh, larger cannabis companies come in and mentor people and help them build their businesses from the ground up rather than use them as like, you know, figureheads while they really was capitalizing. Which kind of reminds me now of these like Shake Shacks and Harvard and who else took the money from the, the, small, the SBA? It's like, you guys have been thriving forever and will continue to thrive, but you still want to attach yourself with something that is a hammer. That's the same thing. It's the same thing. It's, it's greed and it's taking advantage of, of uh, you know, situations where it's, it's difficult for the little guy to take advantage of the small business. Zone, but we're the ones who nearly impossible. Yeah, nearly impossible. They don't need it, but because they have so many resources, they can hire all these accountants and, and all these people to help them through the process before everyone else. And, and they don't get in trouble. Like I think one firm is like, okay, whatever, I'll return the money and Al's good. And I hate to sound like a complainer, but you got me on this path, so I'm gonna blame you. But let me do that, all of a sudden it's, it's a crime. So, but anywho, this is really interesting. I guess it kind of like turns the whole um, conversation. I was focused on the only thing that I saw you at. No offense. Sure, sure, sure. Most people know me from uh, the misadventures of Awkward Black Girl as Fred. Yeah, I'm like, oh my God, Fred. So what's probably the most annoying thing when someone approaches you? Any stereotypes or they have no idea how multifaceted you are? Um, nothing is, I mean, if anybody approaches, I often get approached uh, because people recognize me from from my acting in Awkward Black Girl, and and it's it's never annoying. It's always it's always an honor, you know. Um, I, I I couldn't be more proud of of the work that we did and the impact that that show and that movement has had on the world, you know. And, and so when when whenever I'm recognized for that, it's, it's always an honor. Obviously, you're a very attractive man. You're a very attractive woman, Brittany. So kind of you. I would, I would be blushing if I wasn't brown. But, okay. <laughs> and you're in a city with lots of attractive women and men. It's just a beautiful city. It's L.A. Yeah. L.A. And you're, but you were born and raised there, so you're kind of used to this. And this is probably me being judgy. People would assume that you have this long roster, you're super thoughtish, and there's nothing wrong with you. People want to be a thought, hey, thought it up. What is your take on your looks as a hurdle, if that even exists? <laughs> it's a double-edged sword, I guess you could say. <laughs> I mean, I, I consider myself probably the average looking person around here in LA, you know what I'm saying? But so humble. <laughs> <laughs> but you know what, you know what does create really the hurdles with, with dating for me in my life? 
uh, his social media. Yeah, you know, I, I have had to deal with women uh, being concerned that I'm dating around a lot, or, or you know, I'm a I'm a, a ladies' man kind of kind of guy. Um, and I mean, I think people are just used to that in LA in general. That's kind of our reputation as LA men. I think. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I agree. Uh, but and and that's that's reared its head on me. You know, I find that a lot of women I've dated have had trust issues around that, particularly. Uh, having been an actor and and having you know uh, I, if I I used to post on social media a lot more often back in the day uh, <laughs> I used to post all the time I used to be really engaged but it's been years since I really been engaged like that but uh, part of the issue is that like I'd get a lot of comments from from women right <laughs> and 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 the women that I would date would see that. And they and they get trusted and be like, damn, I know all these women are DMing him. Like, how how can I trust if he's gonna be faithful to me? And so that that's that's been difficult. <laughs> right. Because I would think as a woman, if, if I'm dating you, you don't wanna come across as insecure or uh, low self-esteem, but you would be lying if you, you know, weren't slightly threatened by all the little, all the hard eye emojis under your picture. So is that the reason that you stopped posting? No, that's not the reason. You definitely don't seem like a pushover type, like one woman or two saying, oh my God, this makes me feel uncomfortable and you stopped engaging with people online. No, 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 that's not why at all. Um, I think I'm, I'm a really private person. Uh, so that's one of the reasons, like, I'm not, I'm not going to be posting like where I'm out at, uh, you know, where I'm taking my jogs at, where, you know, what I'm eating every day, you know, uh, I think just naturally I'm just a pretty private person. Uh, and then I, I just don't get the same, uh, feeling I used to get, you know, when Facebook first came out and like, it, it was a really, it was really a network where, you know, people really went there to talk to each other, make comments about each other's lives and, and really share with people. Um, and it just has, to me, it's evolved into to more of a, uh, I don't know, it's just not as authentic as it used to feel. So diplomatic. <laughs> You're right. I mean, it's definitely either like a stalker tool it's not the organic, like you said, uh, community feel that we got with Facebook first. And it, feel, it started to begin to feel like a big popularity contest, to be honest. I think that's the biggest Oh, it, it definitely is. For me, like, I, don't, I, don't, I didn't need the attention to always, of always, like, getting likes. And I used to get plenty of likes on stuff that I post or whatever, but it just felt like a game of how many likes can I get or do I have more likes than you, you know? And that guy, I don't need, I don't need that. <laughs> you had a podcast. Yes, yes, yes. Where's the love? Bay at. So just more about me. I love doing startup business. I've worked for a number of different startups over, over the last 10 years. And the Bay app, uh, which is a, a dating app, mobile dating app, uh, was one of those. Uh, and the tech, that was a tech project that was really exciting. But we, we did raise quite a bit of money, uh, over half a million dollars, uh, really getting going in our first year. It actually got acquired by, by a larger app company, and they rolled it into uh, one of their other products. 
But, you know, we, we were a, a, a Black-owned, Black-founded uh, tech company, and we had a lot of traction back in, what was that, 2016? Uh, we had over 125,000 downloads in our first year. My friends from school, we were on this WhatsApp group chat, and it's still a complaint, which is, I think, what inspired you guys to launch the app. It's hard to, whether it's Bumble or Match or whatever, Say if I want to like narrow down on this niche, I have to like swipe literally like 27 times to come across a face. And then you got to make sure they can read and write. Then it's, an, it's another 50 swipes. So it's, yep. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, I'm like, oh my God. Well, we wanted to, we wanted to specifically uh, work on black dating and create more experiences for young black people to connect because you're right, like on a lot of these apps, particularly like Tinder, for example. There's also racial biases that are that we live with in this world, but that also like exist in on the internet as well. <laughs> you know? Of course, it's a reflection of society. <laughs> you know, you know, uh what the one of my partners, uh the CEO of who the, the guy who was the CEO of the Bay app, uh Brian Gerard, uh it was actually founded by two brothers. Uh, Brian and Justin Gerard. Like real brothers or like brothers? Real, they're they're brothers and they're both and they're actually brothers. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> two really two really smart guys. Okay. Uh, Justin is, is a Harvard alumni. Uh, I met because we had some mutual friends. Uh, one of his uh, roommates at Harvard was one of my buddies, and and, and uh, his brother. Uh, Brian, the CEO, a Virginia Tech guy, uh, really smart guys. One of the reasons Brian came up with the idea to start the Bay app was that he did an experiment with one of his white guy friends where they compared like their swipes on Tinder. And Brian's a good looking guy. You know, I imagine he's probably more, more attractive than his white buddy, you know, but his white buddy was just, he was getting match after match. After, he like 10 times as many matches and and also when you're swiping you know for for brian uh he was swiping past a lot more white women than he was coming across black women on the app as well right so so, so it's a majority of white people on the app right <laughs> so we're already minorities and then, and then right and then yeah no i i, I experienced definitely fewer uh matches on an app like Tinder versus our app, which was a community of, of black folks. And, and one of the obstacles that we had was access to capital. Even though we were successful in raising like $600,000, uh, a tech company is expensive to run. You know, engineers are hard to find and expensive to hire. Uh, and, and we weren't able to attract the kind of capital that we needed to expand and grow. I mean, our marketing was off the chain. Uh, we were a top 50 lifestyle app in seven different countries on iTunes. Uh, we were, we were, we had more traction than, than Tinder had when they launched from Bumble, all those other apps. The difference is we were founded by, you know, a group of black guys. <laughs> and even with, you know, uh, Justin uh, being a Harvard alumni and he was at uh, Dartmouth Business School at the time and, you know, having pedigree like that, uh, you know, it's probably the reason we were able to raise hundreds of thousands. But, but our competitors, 
these white boys, frankly, are raising $2 million like it's nothing. And then they blow it and then they, they can raise another $2 million. It's frustrating, but it's kind of like my dad always says, hey, I've been black my whole life. What, you know, it is what it is. Those are just some of the obstacles, unfortunately. But so you're into startups. Startups that, that serve our community in ways where we're not getting served. Uh, even Awkward Black Girl was a startup. It was a startup TV show, you know? Uh, we, we started it on our own on YouTube, uh, self-funded it, <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah. And that's what we did a, a, a Kickstarter campaign. I, gotta, I know I got a lot of different projects to keep up. <laughs> so currently, uh, like I mentioned, I've been pursuing uh, cannabis licenses through the social equity program. As part of that, um, I've also uh, started a new organization, a nonprofit uh, called the Social Equity Owners and Workers Association. So we do uh, education, uh, community outreach. We, we do lobbying and uh, just reaching out to uh, our pu public officials about policy that relate to you know, our interests. Uh, so so I've, been, I've been working in the community on a nonprofit level for about a year and a half. Uh, and, and we just formed this new organization, which is, which is kind of a, uh, a broader uh, umbrella uh, for the work that we've been doing previously. Um, and yeah, that's kind of what I'm doing now. I'm, a, I'm applying for a dispensary, a storefront dispensary license. That's, that's what I personally, but, but, but my organization also helps others who are social equity applicants do the same thing, right? Uh, these are highly regulated businesses. Like it's, it's not like just having a illegal, uh, cowboy shop. You know, it, it's, it's, <laughs> it's <laughs> there's a lot of rules and regulations. You can lose your license, you know, uh, and it's extremely expensive uh, to start one of these businesses. It probably costs about a million and a half here in, here in Los Angeles. So it, we need a lot of help, especially folks in our community who haven't uh, had the opportunity to operate businesses at that scale before. Uh, we, we got to band together to be able to take advantage of these opportunities to open up storefront retail businesses for people who uh, historically haven't had those opportunities, haven't had to manage a million dollar budget before they carry out a business. Uh, so that's what, that's what we do. I, I, I've been blessed to uh, raise capital and be able to hire experts in accounting and, and legal and, and uh, have that help in my journey. And so I wanted to share those resources with the community. So I've asked my CPA firm to come in and, and do uh, classes uh, for, the, for the community. Uh, same thing with legal experts and uh, uh, real estate experts, all the different aspects of the business that you need to learn about. So people can get up to, the, up to speed. So by the time they get their license, they'll be able to uh, profitably operate. I mean, the cannabis industry is a big opportunity itself. It's a new industry. It's, it's, it's being gradually legalized across the country, right? And it's like, it's like the end of alcohol prohibition. And, and, and so, uh, you know, it's a new industry. And with that, it's, not, it's the only industry that's not already cornered uh, and already uh, monopolized by, by companies, right? Because it's still new. And every other industry in this country, uh, as black people, we're already locked out of these industries. 
we own less than three percent of any industry you can you can name in this country right now. <laughs> and three percent would be generous. In the tech industry, we're less than one percent. You know, maybe in the entertainment industry, we have somewhere near three <laughs> percent. That's why I'm here because I do want to talk about that because the way the solution is uh, creating legislation, you know, uh, that that prioritizes our having ownership in this industry. Uh, people, people who went to prison, who went to jail, uh, people whose families were torn apart. Uh, you know, people who grew up in a in a household where their father was taken out because he sold some weed or, or used some weed, uh, they need to be prioritized in terms of these licenses and being able to have ownership. Uh, and and that just takes us pushing that legislation across the country. It's here in L.A. It's in Chicago. Uh, I, I, they have it in Oakland and in San Francisco. A, a big part of social equity is is the tax dollars. Uh, from the sales of cannabis should be going back to the communities that were most impacted by the criminalization of cannabis, right? That's, that's what we needed to do, right? That's what we need to push for. Here in California, I think the taxes are like 35% when you stack them all on top of each other. LA is 15% local tax and you got a 10% state tax and you got another 10% from somewhere else. Uh, and all that money uh, adds up to be a lot, uh, but none of it is going back to our community specifically to help uh, repair the harms that were done. Well, thank you so much, Madison. This was an awesome conversation. I got a chance to learn far more about you than I initially thought going into this conversation. I wish you the best, and I look forward to following up on our venture. Thank you guys so much for checking out today's episode. I'll see you next time. Don't forget to visit us at www.brithappens.com.